Welcome to Checking In. I'm Carolyn Kilstra, Self Magazine's Editor-in-Chief. Every week, people call in and share a challenge, something that they want advice on. And then I reach out to experts and other people who've been there before to get their perspective. Today's question is one that we hear a lot itself. Elise is struggling with her relationship with alcohol, but she's not sure if she has a problem with a capital P or if she just needs to cut back a little. Stopping drinking has been like an all-consuming matter in my life, probably um, magnified during COVID. I had a 90-day goal, and then the biggest question out there for me is going to be what happens after that. Because these last 90 days, as hard as it sounds, just to kind of go cold turkey, were easier in a way in that I'm not um, negotiating anymore each evening, like, um, am I going to have a drink? How many drinks are is too much? Um, it's just a, a hard no. Is there a way, I guess, to find the balance of having fun socially without overindulging for someone like me who has a history, you know, a genetic history of alcoholism, who has had a history of not being able to find the kill switch? You know, is there a balance to find, or is it all or nothing? This is a question a lot of us are thinking about this time of year. We're just getting past some indulging over the holidays and thinking about what we might want or need in this new year. And some of us might be going straight into dry January. In the second half of the episode, I have a really amazing conversation with Glennon Doyle, the best-selling author of three memoirs, most recently, Untamed. Glennon has spoken publicly and powerfully about her own sobriety, and I wanted to hear from her about what newly sober people can expect from life and relationships. But before we get to sobriety, I wanted to talk a bit more about recovery in general. There's a popular view that recovery from alcohol or drug abuse requires nothing short of full sobriety. And while that definitely works and may be necessary for a huge number of people, new research shows it isn't necessarily the right approach for everyone. Step one, though, before you decide what to do about it, is to realize that you might have a problem in the first place. And that's actually pretty tough, because a drinking problem doesn't always look the way you might expect. Alcohol use disorder and problematic drinking exist on a kind of spectrum, and not everyone has a really severe situation. And more and more, we're starting to recognize that different approaches to managing alcohol intake work for different people, partly due to where they are on that spectrum. That's Sarah Jacoby, one of our health journalists here at Self. Sarah has reported a ton on substance use, as well as harm reduction and recovery. Experts consistently tell her that alcohol use disorder doesn't always look like your life falling apart. That's not the only sign that you might have a problem with alcohol. The idea of having to hit rock bottom before you, like, deserve help is a really damaging concept because, of course, you can change, you can start recovery, you deserve help on that process at any point, you know, even if it started, like, 30 seconds ago. And, of course, the idea of what rock bottom actually looks like can be really, really different for different people. Um, We have kind of this image in our minds in society of rock bottom being, like, you know, you lose your job, you're, like, your partner leaves you, these really big life-altering moments, but it can also just be like small stuff. Like no matter how minor that is, the fact that your substance use or alcohol use is negatively affecting your relationship, your work life, your relationship with your friends, those are all signs that it's worth looking into, like no matter how severe it is. 
based on your research, like, what advice would you have for somebody like Elise, who isn't sure how to approach her issues with drinking or whether she qualifies as having an addiction in the first place? For somebody like Elise, just having that realization is enough of a sign that it's worth looking into. Um, I know that she's already working with a therapist and she's already done a lot of the work to assess um, her, her relationship with drinking. That's a really great discussion to have with her therapist and think about like, you know, not just the act of drinking, but her fears around drinking, her anxiety about what would happen if she drinks and, you know, drinks, you know, quote unquote, too much or, you know, what would happen with her friends? Like go to those worst case scenarios and, and figure out a way to work through them and, and hopefully prevent them. Like we said, experts are starting to recognize that different approaches to managing alcohol intake work for different people. For some people, a cold turkey approach could work if full sobriety is really what they're after, but not everyone necessarily like wants or needs that. People who are on the more like mild end of the spectrum may be totally fine with just reducing their alcohol consumption over time um, and may never really fully quit entirely. A quick health and safety related note here. For people who've been heavy drinkers for a long time, a cold turkey approach can actually be harmful. It can cause dangerous withdrawal symptoms, and it really needs to be done under medical guidance. With that disclaimer aside, we're not saying that sobriety is impossible or the wrong approach. It works, and it can be life-saving for some people. It's one approach, and I think it works for a fair amount of people. It's it's um, you know, the 12-step program, something like AA, has a lot of pros in that it's basically everywhere. It's free. You know, it's very easy to join that type of thing. But we have a lot of other options now, and we know that a sobriety-only approach um, isn't necessarily ideal for everyone. Um, you know, other people might do better with more of like a moderation approach or a moderation management type approach um, that focuses more on just like noticing your drinking patterns. And like, like I said, the types of things that trigger you, some people might be able to do that with the help of just like their therapist that they already see. And then can you tell me a little bit about how a moderation approach to managing alcohol use disorder might work? Like, how would you approach that? One thing that experts have told self in the past is really helpful is to start by just kind of monitoring your drinking, seeing how much you drink and when, and kind of like if you can find any patterns as to what triggers you. A real like strict moderation management approach also includes 30 days of no drinking, um, sort of like what Elise did, just to kind of like see what you do when you're not drinking to see if you if you can pick up any other coping mechanisms that are maybe maybe a little more healthy for you or just work better for you and kind of just give yourself that chance to see that doesn't mean that you have to stop drinking completely but it it reminds you that you have options another issue some people have with a 12 step aa type of approach is that it's sobriety or nothing people can feel like they've failed if they slip up and have a drink and if you have one drink, you are all the way back at day one versus, you know, you could have one drink or you could have 20 drinks and it doesn't really matter. You're back at day one. And that can make people feel like really discouraged um, and that sobriety is really their only measure of worth. So one alternate approach is something like this um, moderation approach where, you know, it's not all or nothing. You have some room to play around. You have some flexibility. Can you talk about how moderation, the moderation approach is potentially a form of harm reduction? The idea of harm reduction is just accepting that human beings are human beings and, you know, 
the idea that you can't use or you shouldn't, for whatever moral reason, use drugs or alcohol, um, that idea is wrong and like a waste of our energy. And really what we should be focusing on instead is making things as safe as possible for people, whether or not they use drugs. And if they're going to use drugs and alcohol, also making that as safe as possible. That also includes, you know, making treatment options accessible to them, making those like really easy to get into um, and not having to like force people to hit that quote unquote rock bottom before they are allowed to get treatment. That also means making sure that people are treated kindly and with compassion if they do go to the doctor, that they aren't treated differently or poorly because they have a use disorder. The big takeaway here is that treatment should be individualized. What works for one person may not work for others. And not everyone has or needs to have the same goals in recovery. Whatever Elise ultimately decides to do, it's a really great thing that she's making that choice with the help of a mental health care professional. And honestly, that she's thinking about her relationship with alcohol at all. Next, we're going to speak with writer Glennon Doyle and hear what recovery looks like for her. But first, a quick break. Hi, how are you? Good. Are you in your closet? I love it. I am. I am in my closet and I, it has not been home edited, so do not judge. That makes me so happy. I wrote all of Untamed in a closet. This is Glennon Doyle. She's written some incredible books like Untamed, Carry On Warrior, and Love Warrior. I wanted to talk to Glennon because she writes a lot about her own recovery. So Elise has these 90 days, 90 days that she hasn't been drinking. But she's not sure if she wants to continue or what she should do next. Do you have any practical advice for her for what she should do to continue taking care of herself or taking that next step that it seems like she clearly knows she needs to take? This is like something kind of ridiculous to say on an advice show, but the only advice I ever really trust is not people that tell me that they know what I should do, but people who remind me that I already know what I should do. And so what I would say to her is that she should really, before she makes her next move, that she should spend some good time in the quiet and each day turn off all of the external voices in the entire world, turn off all the TVs, turn off the phones, turn off the podcasts, turn off the books, turn off all the other experts who think they know what you're supposed to do with your life and sit in the quiet and let the truth rise up. Because we as human beings are like those snow globes, you know, we just like keep ourselves all shaken up because we don't want to see that truth at the center. For Glennon, it was all or nothing. Once she realized that she needed to stop drinking, she embraced sobriety completely. So I remember going to my first AA meeting and we were all sitting around the little circle and we were all, we were all reading these brochures, okay? So they have these brochures sometimes on the tables in those rooms and you can pick them up. And they, they have kind of questionnaires, okay? So it's like, you might be an alcoholic if, okay? And there's just a bunch of things that you can check off. Like you drink more than three drinks in a setting or you've ever blacked out or you drink alone or all of these things. And so I just looked around the circle at one moment and we were all just sitting in the circle, like filling out these little questionnaires, trying to figure out if we in fact had a drinking problem. And I kept thinking, isn't the fact that we are all sitting in these like, 
plastic chairs in the basement of this church in the middle of a day on a Thursday, isn't this like a pretty big indicator that we do in fact have a drinking problem? Like it's not like normal people without a drinking problem are just wandering around the streets going, I've got 45 minutes to kill. I'm going to go check out this meeting in this basement of this church. Glennon thinks a lot of people who struggle with drinking or addiction have a period of time where they know that they have a problem. And deep down, they also know what they need to do. But that period of time between the knowing and the doing can stretch on and on. Because knowing what you need to do and then actually doing it are two very different things. And it sounds like Elise may be in that period of time right now. You just don't want to do the thing that you know to do because the thing that you know to do is really hard and really scary and will change your life in ways that you feel unready for. And so what you do is you stretch out the time as much as possible between the knowing and the doing by pretending you don't know, by asking your friends, by taking BuzzFeed quizzes, by reading every book and article and, and suffering and suffering and suffering with this nagging question, do I, do I, when you know all your entire body knows that the answer is yes. Right. It, and it doesn't have to look like checking off every single one of the boxes. No, there's no boxes. The boxes, do you and your soul feel like alcohol is getting in the way of your possibility of creating the truest, most beautiful life you can imagine for yourself? And if you know in your gut that alcohol is getting in the way of that, it doesn't matter if you check any of those boxes or all of those boxes. That's the only box. And so every woman has to decide for herself because there could be a, a person who drinks one glass of wine a night and knows that that one glass of wine every single night is taking the edge off. And that edge is exactly what she needs to get her work done on this earth. Right. And that can be a drinking problem. No brochure is going to tell her that. For Glennon, the right choice for her was quitting drinking for good. And Elise, in consultation with her therapist, will need to figure out the right approach for her own life. But if Elise does decide to stop drinking alcohol, Glennon says that no brochure is going to tell her how hard that is to do, at least at first. When I got sober, when I finally got sober, I expected all of my problems to be fixed. And instead, what happened is that I just remembered every single freaking second why it was that I started drinking in the first place. Right? Right. Like, right. Like, all I did was think of, oh, yeah, like this is why I started getting wasted because this sucks, right? Because I have been numbing myself from the human experience for so long. And now it's all coming back and it is the, it's excruciating. It's like recovering from frostbite, you know? It's just like everything starts tingling and hurting. Because feeling feelings is really hard. Yes. Yes, that's why we start numbing. And then we stop feeling completely, which was kind of the point. But then we almost die and we ruin everyone's life. So then we start over, <laughs> right? We go to sobriety. I remember sitting in one of my first meetings and speaking for the first time and standing up and saying, my name is Glennon and I'm recovering everything. And I've been sober for whatever, six days. And I'm scared to death because I thought that my problem was drinking but I've quit drinking and I'm miserable. So now I'm scared to death that the problem is me. And I sat down, this woman came and sat down next to me at the end of the meeting. 
And I will never forget her face. She put her, she was like 70 years old. She put her hand on my leg. She said, honey, I'm going to tell you something that someone told me in early sobriety. And that is this, the secret to life is that being human is not about feeling happy. Being human is about feeling everything. Hmm. And so the secret is it's hard right now for you. It's extra hard for you, not because you're doing it wrong, but because you're finally doing it right. Because you're feeling all of your feelings. So that is to say that it is very important for me to warn newly, freshly sober people that it is not, in fact, the quick fix, the nirvana, the 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 feel good experience that the, that everybody around you is accidentally promising you it will be. It's actually excruciatingly difficult in the beginning because you have stopped abandoning yourself. Right, right? and here comes the the hard work. Right, here comes life. So it is hard as hell in the beginning, and it is worth every minute of the hard because it's really excruciating, really hard, and then it just starts to get a little bit more beautiful and a little bit more beautiful. And then one day you wake up and you don't have that nagging question anymore. Am I wasting my life? And you become a woman that can look yourself in the eyes every day and know that you are showing up and that you are not missing any of it. Because the only thing worse than feeling all of it is missing all of it. One of the things Elise talks about is having to give up this understanding of who she is and how her loved ones and her friends see her. Here's Elise again. If someone's going to take a dare, it's me. If someone is challenging someone to arm wrestling in the bar, it's me. Part of my identity has been to be the fun girl, you know. uh, Drinking has been part of my life since I was 15. Like, unapologetically (laughs) part of my life. Um, So it makes for a lot of fun memories if, in fact, I can remember in the morning. Did you have to deal with that, having to kind of say, this is who I was and now I'm a different person? Like, how, how, how can you, what advice do you have to help her navigate changing her perception of herself? Yeah, I for sure, I mean, there's no like boozy person. I don't know many, many of us who weren't the fun friend. Like I fund myself right into jail a few times. I fund myself in, you know, out of a entire bank account. I fund myself out of probably a lot of friendships. Every morning I was the one they were talking about. because I did stupid shit, right? I was like the jester. I was like, like, what is the fun friend? I imagine Elise can imagine more for herself than being the fun friend. And that's why she's having this conversation that being the fun friend maybe isn't enough anymore for Elise. And she wants to be more than the fun friend. That is what I wanted for myself. You get to the point where you're so sick of women who don't give a fuck and all you want to be is surrounded by women who give a lot of fucks, who like care about the world and who who have dignity and take their lives and their communities and their relationships seriously and who show up. So I just think that there's a hell of a lot more for a woman to be than the fun friend. A big, sometimes scary part of changing your relationship with alcohol is that your relationships with people may also change. Elise talks about that, too. I 
have been so grateful for the friends who've supported me through just this 90 days and kind of understanding what I was doing. Many, many have been so supportive. And, you know, if uh, we get together, they say, do we just want to have seltzer tonight? And I've actually been good with people having wine or beer, you know, drinks in front of me. So I'm pretty proud of myself about that. But um, I've had other friends who were less enthusiastic about my mission here and just when is this 90 days over, you know, which makes you contemplate your relationships. Like I'm 47 and I might just have some drinking buddies, you know, that are only that. Glennon says her life changed completely when she started recovery. She got sober the same time she found out that she was pregnant. (laughs) Nothing more fun than a newly pregnant, freshly sober girl. I was a barrel of laughs, just a barrel of laughs. But I mean, my whole life revolved around the people I went out with, people I partied with. Those were my people. And I don't know. I think you do change your habits dramatically. You find the things you used to do. I mean, I remember I went to a couple of things in the beginning and I just would like look at people and be like, did I used to laugh at that? Like, did I think this was funny? Like you realize when you're sober that after a certain point in the evening, everybody just gets stupider, but everybody thinks it's funnier. It's it's like a fascinating social experiment to try just once to like hang sober with really drunk people. But what I would also say is that it, it's a little lonely in the beginning, for sure. It's hard to take space from friends you love or to realize that you don't have as much in common once you've stopped drinking. Glennon is actually still close with her two best friends, who used to be her drinking buddies. But they have completely different relationships now. And there were other friends who she grew apart from. When you're the problem drinker, you also often hang out with people who can drink a lot but aren't problem drinkers. And we all know the difference. There's just people who drink and they're just always, they're the ones who are always losing their keys, who are always losing their wealth, the ones who are always getting lost, the ones who like start drinking and the whole their whole world falls apart every night. Anybody who you're friends with who you lose because you don't drink together anymore was not like a super, a friend that you need for your whole life anyway. That's for sure. But sometimes your friendships can change in a positive way. And then there's those friends that you learn when you quit drinking. Drinking wasn't the only basis of your relationship. There was more there. Which you never would have found out if you didn't stop. And so I have a couple relationships that just friendships that just changed in beautiful, real ways. It's like that monkey bar thing where you're like a little kid and you're on one and you have to like, you see the next one and you really want to get to it. But then you have that terrifying moment where you have to let go of one and be like hanging in the air before you can grab onto the next one. It's hard to take that leap. Glennon has a few tips. She calls them her reset buttons. Small things that help her stay in the moment with herself. Help her not abandon herself when things feel hopeless. Several times a day, I decide that I hate my life, that I need a new house, that I need a new religion, that I need a new career, that I need a new family, that everything that I need a new everything. And what I really need is one freaking glass of water. Okay? Like, these are the little things that get us through. Mine are so much, mine are so related to water. It's ridiculous. Like a glass of water, if that doesn't work, a bath, if that doesn't work, sweat. If the sweat doesn't work, I have to get in my car and drive to the Gulf of Mexico and sit by the beach. But it's also like walk to the corner with your dog. These are the things we do that help us um, reset, help us laugh at ourselves, 
it took me 44 years to realize that the answer is always very small. Writing also helps. Having any secret for me makes no sense. It makes no sense. It doesn't jive with my view of being a human, which is that we're all the same and there's really nothing to be ashamed of. And there's nothing that I've done that a million other people haven't done. And there's nothing that I've thought that a million other people haven't thought. And that when I feel like I need to keep something secret, that is my cue that I need to write about it stat. So the less I want to write about something, the more certain I am that that's the thing I want to write. I have to write about next. Because what happens when every single time, every single time that I get those scary things that are inside, outside, they're just a hell of a lot less scary. They're just not, these things get to the light and they're like, I can't believe that thing was so big and scary inside of me. Right. And then I'm lucky enough that my writing's very public. So people read it and go, me too, me too, me too. And then it's like, ugh. Once again, it's just something that's the same about all of us. So shamelessness for me is a way of life. It's like my spiritual practice. How can your loved ones help with that process? Nobody ever loved anybody out of addiction. I was and am deeply, deeply loved. Okay. And none of that love saved me from my journey. I think there is a way of showing up for someone and just releasing yourself of any responsibility to fix the person. There is a way to show up for someone who was lost in addiction and to still find the person there. And the way you do that is that you decide that their addiction, that their drinking, that any of that is absolutely out of your control and you will never fix it. That it is actually none of your business. And that your job when you show up is to not have a relationship with the addiction, but to have a relationship with the person who is still there. Glennon says it's hard for people who haven't experienced early sobriety to be helpful. Kind of how people who've recently lost someone might not want to talk to people who have never lost someone. But if you have a loved one who is suffering, you can help them find resources. Elise's brother actually helped her find a therapist. Glennon also recommends writers like Holly Whitaker. We'll link to her website and a few others in our show notes. But I wouldn't give, <laughs> the, only thing, the only disclaimer is that I don't ever give a sobriety book to a person who hasn't decided to become sober as a hint. <laughs> Okay, that happens to me several hundreds of times and it's very transparent and annoying. So you don't offer a book as a hint. You only offer it as an affirmation of something that the person has already decided. Thank you so much, Glennon. That was amazing. Loved every minute. Thank you. I hope this was helpful to you, Elise, and to everyone else in the audience who needs to turn off this podcast and spend some time in the quiet. Thanks so much for checking in. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate and leave us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional resources and episode references in the show notes. Follow Self on Instagram at Self Magazine. Follow me, I'm at Carolyn Kilstrap. On our audio team, supervising producer is Odelia Rubin. Lead producer is Haley Fager. Executive producer is Shara Morris. Producer is Phoebe Unterman. Associate producers are Andrea Batanzos and Kate Mishkin. And sound engineer is Scott Somerville. 
On the self team, the editorial lead is Sarah Yalowitz. Digital director is Amy Eisinger. Researchers are Amy Marcherana, Windurl, and Colleen de Belfon. And production manager is Nico Steele. The theme music is by Biscuit and Butter, courtesy of Blaze Unlimited LLC. Special thanks to Julie Shen and Neon Hum Media. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.